The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, in holy baptism, you anointed us with holy chrism and healed us of all sin, making us little Christs who bear in our body your Son, our Savior. Continue to strengthen us by your Holy Spirit so that we may embody Christ in the world through our words and in our actions. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Bless we the Lord. Well, I'm very excited to teach Bible class. I don't get to teach Bible class very often, believe it or not. So it's really great to be here. It's better than teaching seminarians, let me tell you. Um, But it really is great. And to teach a text I've never taught before, I don't think. So this is really even double exciting. I refer to it a lot, but I don't teach it. And Scott and I consulted, you're doing parables. He asked me to do the rich man and Lazarus. But before I begin, I want to just say a few things. As you heard, I'm involved now with OIM, which is the Office of International Mission. And today we prayed for persecuted Christians in Burkina Faso and the the Democratic Republic of Congo. That hits very close to home. Um, Our area director, we have area directors for all the different parts of the world, Latin America, Caribbean, Spain. We have one for Eurasia, one for Asia, one for Africa in the east, one for Africa in the west. Africa in the west is very dangerous. And Gary Schulte and his wife are in now process of moving from Burkina Faso because of the persecution to the, the Democratic Republic of Congo. So it's, but it's, it's, it's better. The, these people have been missionaries for 20, 25 years. And they, they, they simply spend their lives avoiding, you know, getting killed, basically. And they do incredible work, and they're wonderful people. He was just with me in Latin America in the Caribbean to see what we do, and he was very impressed with our, our life there. And, and I was very, very impressed with, you know, listening to some of the stories because he really does go through it. So thank you for praying for them. I really very much appreciate that. Also, a little advertisement. I have one, two, three, four, five words for you. Greece and the Greek Isles, okay? Uh, As you know, we're leading a tour uh, in October. Many of you have signed up. You've heard about it. How many tours have we led, Linda? 16, maybe? Something like that over the years. It's one of the favorite things we do, and we love it because of you folks. It's so much fun seeing these wonderful places with other people. Linda and I have done two of these Nawas tours to Greece. Remember, Greece and Turkey are the holy land of the New Testament. Okay? And Greece, of course, is where, in many ways, the, the, the first coming of the gospel to Europe. And we will see that. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, you see the monumental sites of Greece from the ancient times, but you also get to, to follow St. Paul, and it's a, it's a marvelous tour. We'd love to have you along. Um, before Scott asked me to do Greece, I had already agreed, because we did it this year. Uh, we had 60 people go to the Holy Land in February, and the guy said, you know, you, you guys do this so well, you should do it again. So I had signed up to go with some, some colleagues in the Office of International Mission and in Synod to the Holy Land. So if you missed the Holy Land tour from, from St. John's, we're also doing that. And I have brochures if you're interested in that. That's in November, 10 to 19. So I've got both. Little advertisement. We'd love to have you on either one. 
Greece first, then Holy Land, but if you haven't seen the Holy Land, it's really worth doing. So, Okay, end of advertisements. Um, this passage from Luke 16, you can see the, the verses there, 19 to 31, the rich man and Lazarus, well-known story. Jesus does not call it a parable, so it's, it's one of those sort of ambiguous genre. Usually a parable is named such, or it's a parable that begins the kingdom of God is like a man who sows seed. We know that's immediately a parable. Um, <clears throat> the Good Samaritan, for example, is not a parable. It's a story. It's actually a real story. Jesus is telling a story that had been handed down for a long time. Um, you've been talking about parables, and the, the parables in Matthew and the parables in Luke are a little different. The parables in Matthew, as I said, are kingdom of God parables, kingdom of the heavens, I should say. That's Matthew's language. And those are, those are really a totally different character than the ones you're going to find in Luke that are uniquely Lucan. Good Samaritan, prodigal son, I know you did that recently, the unjust steward, the rich man and Lazarus, the Pharisee and the publican. These are of a different type. They're not kingdom of God parables. Kingdom of God parables, you always remember to go to... to to, to, the, to the cross because the kingdom always has a king and the king is always coronated on the cross. So when you think of kingdom language, you think of king, you think of crucifixion, you think of this is the king of the Jews. So you immediately go directly there it, through the, the, the character of the parable. One of the things that I think is happening when Luke writes his gospel, and some of you know this, Matthew is maybe earlier written for the Jewish audience, because it's a very Jewish gospel. Luke written for Gentiles later on, the end of Paul's missionary journeys, which ended in 58. Those of you who don't know dates, 30 is when Jesus is crucified, raised, and ascends. Um, the, the Apostolic Council in Acts 15 is the year 49, so that's about 19 years later. And in, from about 46 to 58, okay, so just before the Apostolic Council until the year 58, Paul makes those three missionary journeys, okay? Evangelizes the whole world, 12 years, okay? Think back 12 years ago. What have you done in the last 12 years, okay? In 12 years, Paul evangelized the world. I love that. I, I mean, it just, that just... So anyway, Luke is written at the end of that period, 58, 59, and the church is settled in. There's a church now. There are congregations. They're celebrating regularly word and sacrament ministry. And I think there was a sense in the earliest part of the Christian life that <clears throat> the Lord was going to come soon. So people were really kind of ready for that to happen. When it wasn't happening, as the, the years went by, you know, and the church gets settled, I think when Luke writes his gospel, you know, they think back on the teaching of Jesus and they go, maybe we're in this for the long haul, what does it mean to live now in the world as Christians? And that's what Luke's parables are about. They're about life. They're about living the Christian life in the world. Um, and I think you can see it in this parable very, very clearly. Another huge Lucan theme, huge Lucan theme, is the proper use of possessions. Now that we're in for the long haul, how do we use the things that God has given us? Now, you know, Acts has this kind of somewhat socialistic, you know, sharing of all the goods at the beginning. 
But I mean, the, one of the great themes of Luke is that God's given us these things. Now, how do we use them to promote the kingdom, to extend the gospel? And, you know, as, as we're going to see, there's nothing wrong with possessions. It's the proper use of them. I always illustrate this this way. As some of you know, I wrote a commentary for CPH, my own commentary, and I had my own particular way of looking at it. And then, a number of years later, they asked me to write a commentary. This is now out in paperback, so those of you are it's kind of fun. This is the gift that keeps on giving, let me tell you. <laughs> InterVarsity Press, they are great. They keep getting, getting, uh, getting checks from them. But anyway, <laughs> it's great. I love them. Uh, and, and they send me Christmas presents. They're the nicest Christmas presents. I mean, they're wonderful. I, I love them. They've been great. But anyway, this is a commentary using the, the, the fathers of the church. And one of the things that I noted as I read the fathers of the church is they interpret Luke differently than I do. They had different accents. And you know what they were, and I say this with all due respect, they were, they were obsessed with the way Jesus talked about money. They're always talking about it. And that was a very, very lively debate in the early Christian church. And the fact of the matter is, I, I, as I look back on it, Jesus talks about possessions, money, all the time. It's a, it's a huge theme. And, and it, in a way, you, at some point, you've got to deal with it. This is another example of it, the rich man, okay? The, and, and Lazarus, the rich man. How does he use his riches? Um, one of the things that, that I, I do when I talk about Jesus' ministry is that he basically did two things. He was a teacher, preacher, and he showed mercy. He performed miracles of mercy. That's some, that's some he was a teacher, miracle worker. Okay, so he, 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 I mean, he wasn't just announcing the word of God. He was the word made flesh speaking. And his word had the power to do what it said. So when he spoke, stuff happened. And that's what miracles were. And he showed, really, the vast majority of his miracles are miracles of mercy. So teaching and miracles of mercy. This text is about mercy. This is really what this is about. How do you show mercy to those who need to be shown mercy? And the way in which it's described in Luke, and this is a a very lively comment, I mean a very lively concept in the ancient church, is by almsgiving. Almsgiving, basically, if you translate the Greek, is mercy giving, giving out of mercy. And in a way, you could boil this parable down, this story, by simply saying the rich man did not show mercy to Lazarus. He did not give alms. Okay? And, and that, is, that is a crucial thing for Jesus, almsgiving. How do you use your possessions in demonstrating the mercy of Christ? In the world. Now, what I have up here is this is from my commentary, a very simple structure. Um, I always like to look at the big picture, and and you, I, so, some of you have heard me before. This is a chiasm where you move into a center, and this is the center. Lazarus longed to be satisfied with crumbs that fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs came and licked his sores. Lazarus is the center of this part of the, the parable. This is the first part. And, I mean, the chiasm is simple. A certain rich man dressed in fine clothes, feasted lavishly every day. The rich man died and was buried. He's on the outside. And then a poor man called Lazarus was cast down at his gate full of sores. The poor man died 
and was carried to heaven by angels to the bosom of Abraham. So very simple. There's the story being told. Now, just a couple of observations. One is, Lazarus has a name, and the rich man doesn't. Now, you know he's sometimes called what? Do you know? Dives, Dives. yeah. And that's simply the Latin name for rich. So they just transliterate it, Dives, Lazarus and Dives. But he does not have a name because his name is not written in the book of heaven, but Lazarus's is. And that's the point. That's the point. And, um, and one of the things that I think you see in this part of the parable is that you have the occasion for mercy. You know, and it's all over the place. And this is right out of his door. I mean, it's, he's there, you know, um, full of sores. And even the dogs, in a sense, are better than the rich man. They give alms. They take, you know, they, in a sense, console him by licking his sores. The second part of the parable is, is, again, very simple. It's the conversation between the rich man and Abraham. And you can see that the first part, the heavenly life of Lazarus and the eternal torment of the rich man, so they're described for us. And then, in many ways, this is the most important part of it in terms of the larger Luke and context. It's about hearing Moses and the prophets, or even one raised from the dead. Of course, that's a reference to Jesus. So hearing Moses and the prophets. Now that's a huge Lucan theme. The law and the prophets, and here it's actually named Moses and the prophets. And one of the reasons why it's one of the great Lucan themes is at the end of Luke, in the Emmaus story, and then the final teaching of Jesus to his disciples, it talks about how from Moses and the prophets he interpreted in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So hearing Moses and the prophets, understanding their Christological character, how they apply to us, what that means for our life now and in the future, it's one of the great Lucan themes. Now, what I did here was I gave you a couple of passages here that I would use as a kind of an interpretation of this passage. You know the Beatitudes and the woes. Only Luke has both. Matthew only has Beatitudes. Luke has both. And Luke, in many ways here, is more Jewish than Matthew because the, the, the way they taught catechesis in the Old Testament, the way the Jews taught catechesis is, this is the way of life, blessed are you, this is the way of death, woe to you. And Luke has them both. And you can see the rich man and Lazarus in the, the blessings and the woes. Blessed you hungering now, for you shall be satisfied. That's a very important word. It's a word that's used here in, the, is it here? He longed to be satisfied. Well, it's used in the parable. We'll see it when we actually look at the text. And that, that satisfaction is the satisfaction that people experienced at the feeding of the 5,000. So they were filled and they were satisfied. Satisfecho. I love, that. I love to say that in Spanish. Satisfecho. You know, completely, totally satiated, full, you know. And then the woe, woe to you, you who are filled now, for you will be hungry. Now, there, there you have it. You have Lazarus and the rich man. Now, when I teach Luke's gospel, and I'm teaching it right now, the parables that I talked about in Luke are during the journey, when Jesus turns his face to go to Jerusalem in 951. 
And some of you know that the Galilean ministry of, of Jesus was two and a half years long. So he spent two and a half years in his hometown. And then he turns his face to go to Jerusalem, and he takes about six months to do what is normally a three- or four-day walk. So he takes six months to get there, almost six months. You know, he leaves in probably sometime in the fall, October, November. Probably spends Christmas in Bethlehem, right? Um, <laughs> and, then, and then, no, but, but, but during, it's a total change in the gospel. There's a total different feel. I mean, if I could, you know, read it out loud to you, I think you'd sense it. But all these parables are during these teaching while he's on his way to Jerusalem. And you, you hit an apex in the gospel when you get to chapter 15, the prodigal son. Now, I don't know if Luke intended this. I'd like to think he did. But Luke 15, if you count the verses, is smack dab in the middle of, of the gospel. So there are just as many verses before Luke 15, just as many after. So it's an apex. And I know you've studied the prodigal son. It is the greatest teaching of Jesus ever. It's just phenomenal. And it's about mercy. It's, a, it's everything. It's got baptism, dead alive. That's where Paul gets it from, Romans 6. You know, it's got the, the fatted calf. You know, it's got the double repentances. It's just a magnificent text. And in a way, everything after Luke 15 flows out of it. Now, most of us struggle with, and I'm using this because it's the normal way we talk about it, the unjust steward. You know, we think about the unjust steward and you know, how could that be? You know, what, what's, you know, and the, the problem with our interpretation of the unjust steward is we focus on him and not on his merciful master. Okay, and there are many parallels between the prodigal son and the unjust steward in language, even in themes. And why does the unjust steward do the radical thing of giving all the money away? Because he knows he has a merciful master. And he knows that when the master finds out that he was doing this, he would go, well, you know, that is the way I am, so okay. I mean, it's, he made me look good. And the unjust steward made friends for himself with unrighteous mammon. Now, who should have done that? The rich man, lavishly, you know, every day. You know, he should have made friends for himself by taking care of Lazarus, you know. So, I mean, you, you see immediately from the beginning of, of chapter 16 to the one text we're at today, you, you see how the unjust steward is, in a sense, already lived out in this parable. This is a crucial verse, and it, look at where it is. It's right after the unjust steward. Now, the Pharisees, being lovers of money, that's the problem. Not money, but lovers of money. We're listening to all these things, and we're scoffing at him. Now, there, there are a lot of scholars who don't, don't believe this, but I do. Namely, that in the prodigal son, the Pharisees and the tax collectors are the prodigal son. The elder brother are the Pharisees. And I think here you have, in the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man represents the Pharisees, lovers of money. I mean, can't get any clearer than that. And the ones you know, who are tax collectors and sinners, the ones who are broken by their sin or by their sickness, that they're represented by Lazarus. So my point is simply this. When you get to the rich man and Lazarus, you've got a lot of context you have already so that you're going to interpret this text now in light of this larger context. Okay? Are you with me? 
All right, good. Now, I found this icon. I'm always looking for, oh, I can't fit it all. Well, you can kind of see it. This is, I guess it's an icon. It's really bizarre. But it, it teaches, the th- can you see it? It teaches the three parts of the, the, the first one is you got the rich man, and here's, here's Lazarus with all his sores. You see him with his sores. Now, here's Lazarus' death, and then his in the bosom of Abraham. And here's the rich man's death, and in the fires of hell. Okay, So this icon really kind of encapsulates it in a, in a really crazy way. But anyway, I thought it was kind of fun. Okay. <laughs> now, here's the text, and this is my translation. And, and I'll just go through it, okay? I'll just be very, you know, kind of pedantic and work through it, but make some comments, and you jump in if you'd like to to make some comments. And a certain man was rich, and he used to clothe himself in purple and fine linen, making merry every day sumptuously. Now, purple, of course, is a sign of royalty, a sign of wealth. Purple was a color that only wealthy people could have, and that's fine linen certainly suggests that. But here's his problem. He doesn't understand what feasting is all about. You don't feast every day. That's absurd. Nobody does. You can't. That's against the theories of festivity. And if you want to read one of the most wonderful books, and it's accessible, it's, it's philosophy, but it's wonderful. It's a book by the name of Joseph Pieper, P-I-E-P-E-R. He's a Roman Catholic theologian of the 20th century, and he wrote a book called in Tune with the World, Theories of Festivity. And he also wrote a lot of books about work and leisure. Okay? His theory of festivity is you, feasts are out of the ordinary. They're, they're exceptions to the rule. Most of our life is working, day in, day out. But then we take these moments where we just break out in festivity. And what he says in most places where they break out in festivity it's always excess, okay? You stay up too late, you eat too much, you drink too much wine, you have too much fun. But that's the nature of a feast. You can't do that every day. This guy is, okay? He's totally abusing the very notion of what it means to be human. Everybody knows this. This guy doesn't. I think that's a very important point. A certain poor man by the name of Lazarus. Notice that, the name of Lazarus. You know, name is so important in the scriptures, so important in the New Testament, the name that is placed on you. It is a baptismal reference. You have a name. Um, I mean, the fact that he's named Lazarus is, is just crucial to this text. He had been laid at his gate, being covered with sores. You can see this is kind of a wooden translation, but it's literal. And longing, and there's the language, to be satisfied. Blessed are you who are satisfied now. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. They were satisfied at the feeding of the 5,000. He was longing to be satisfied with that which falls from the table of the rich man. Not even to be invited to to the table. He'd take the crumbs. Now, you you know that there's that story about the woman who, you know, would even take the crumbs. And Jesus figures out, you know, this woman is really, she she wasn't a Jew. That is not in Luke's gospel, by the way. I think here you have... Kind of an echo of that, though, in Luke. So, I mean, he, he is willing to just crawl under the table and eat what drops down. 
but he doesn't even get that. And then, in a way, this is pathetic, but it's also a sign of mercy, as I said. Even the dogs coming used to lick his sores. They consoled him. The dogs consoled him. The rich man did not. Now, I put this in yellow because in the, in, the, in the Greek text, this is, a, this is a, a radical transgression, and it happened. So something happened. And what happens? Their death. The poor man died, was carried by the angels into the bosom of Abraham. Now, we think of that as just being sort of an intimate sort of thing. But remember at the Lord's Supper, okay, John was on the right of Jesus. And where did he lay? He laid in Jesus' bosom. So when somebody is in the bosom, you're talking about a feast. You're talking about the fact that they are at table with Abraham and Isaac. And you remember, this is from Luke 13. The, 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 the feast, they're going to come from east and west, north and south, to sit at table in the kingdom of God with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs. Lazarus is given the seat of honor in the bosom of Abraham. So he goes from outside the gate, not even getting crumbs at the table, to being at the place of honor at the feast. And, and the contrast there... This guy is eating every day sumptuously, but Abraham uh, bosom in, the, in the, the feast that has no end. Lazarus has the place of honor. Um, I think Jesus tells this very simply, as is oftentimes the case in the gospel. It, it, there's, no, there's no fanfare, and the rich man also died and was buried. Boom, that's the end of him. Just, you know, died and was buried. Okay, now there's the story. Now the conversation, and you know that most of the New Testament is dialogical, which means there's usually a, a dialogue between Jesus and someone or somebody and somebody. And here the dialogue is between the rich man and Abraham. And, and I, look at how many times I put it in red. Abraham is referred to. Father Abraham. So that's, he, he's a Jew. That's how we know he's a Jew, because he calls him Father Abraham. You know, and you think of Zacchaeus, the rich man, you know, climbed up in the tree. You know, he was a Jew, and yet he's saved. Because what did he do? He gave alms. He made restitution, you know. Notice Lazarus is named, you know, a number of times. And you've got Abraham and Lazarus having their names. And then, of course, down here, in the climax, you've got Moses and the prophets, Moses and the prophets. And the language of hearing, I, I highlighted that because that's so important. Hearing is a technical word for somebody who is a catechumen. A catechumen is a hearer of the word. So if you're, if you're a catechumen and you hear the word, the word of Abraham, the, the word of Moses and the prophets, you are somebody who will rest in the bosom of Abraham. Um, let them hear they do, if they do not hear. And as I said, this is immediate trajectory to the end of Luke where Jesus interprets in Moses and the prophets all the things written about him. And then I also highlighted this, if someone were to rise from the dead. Isn't that interesting? Somebody does rise from the dead. And that guy also not only rises from the dead, but teaches from Moses and the prophets in Luke 24, about what it means to understand the Old Testament in terms of himself. And what the Old Testament is about, Jesus says, is his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. That's the content of the, the Old Testament. 
So anyway, let's, let's read the story. And in Hades, lifting his eyes, being in torture, now that tells you a lot right there, he saw Abraham from afar and Lazarus at his bosom. Now, this is one of three places where the scriptures suggest that heaven and hell are not that far apart. I think there's a reference in um, Revelation, and then there's also one, I think, in Isaiah. Now, there are some people who would like to suggest that this is an exact description, literal description, of life in heaven and hell. And I think we would go too far if we made that um, uh, deduction. But I think it's Isaiah 66 and Revelation 14. They, don't, they, along with this text, suggest that the saints in glory will see those in hell and that there is a sense that these things uh, are very close to one another, that the devil and, you know, and, and Jesus and the angels are, are really in two spheres that, that can sort of communicate to one another. And notice how, how, how it's just, Hades is described, the place of the dead. Torture, torture. He sees Abraham, and he sees, and look at it's repeated, Lazarus at his bosom. And he, calling out, said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Okay, he finally gets it. He gets it, we think, maybe. Okay, he's suffering. He wants mercy. And yet, as some have pointed out, and I think it's fair, it's sort of all about him, you know. Send Lazarus in order that he might dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Now, there's the suggestion, and, you know, and then because I am suffering torment in these flames, that it is a fire. It is a fire, you know. And he, he, he wants mercy. Abraham is merciful. Look at what he calls him, child. He's a child of Abraham, in a sense. He's a Jew. Um, he was born in Israel. But he, he reminds him of, of what it was all about. Remember that you received in full your good things in your life, and Lazarus likewise the bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are suffering torment. You know? He's not making a judgment. These are the facts. This is what happened. And if you look at it, he's simply describing what you know, starts the parable, you know, the story in 19 to 22. He's simply describing the reality of what happened when they were alive. And then he says this, 26, And in all these things, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. Now, that's one of the few places in the New Testament, there, there, there's not as many as you might think. This is a passive Okay, has been fixed. And who is the subject of that passive? God. This has been fixed by God. It's called a theological passive. God has fixed this chasm between us and you. In order that, purpose clause, those desiring to go across from here to you may not be able, nor may they cross over from there to us. Now what is expressed here is a very sad reality, horrible reality. And that is the finality of death. That there is no, you know, 
after death, any crossing over. There's no chance of repentance. That's it. You're either in the torment or you're in the bosom of Abraham. Now, the the rich man is not going to give up. He keeps going. He says, I beg you, therefore, Father, and and you can see that he has a sense of, of his own identity as a Jew, in order that you might send him, that is Lazarus, to the house of my father, for I have five brothers, in order that he might bear witness to them, in order that they also do not come into this place of torture. Now, it's almost as if he has a conversion here. He's thinking now of his five brothers. Um, I love some, one of the early fathers, I think it was Augustine, who said, the five brothers are the five senses. That's how he interpreted it. This is allegory, good old allegory. Okay? And that, that we, we apprehend God through our senses. So send, him, send somebody back so that people can come to their senses and realize that you know if they don't, show alms, if they don't show mercy. It's almost as if he has a sense here of, of the, the consequences and reaching out. And this is a very important little statement. I should have highlighted it. That he might bear witness to them. You know? And that's the word for martyr. That he might, you know, in a sense, you know, express the, 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 the suffering that must happen in this life in order to inherit the kingdom of God. And remember, Paul says that. You know, we we must suffer to enter the kingdom of God. That's the nature of our life. And we're all going to suffer. I mean, that's that's just a given. The question is, how do you interpret that suffering? That's the key. The key to life is, how do you interpret your suffering? And as Christians, we always interpret our suffering through the sufferings of Christ. We see our suffering as a way of participating in the suffering of Christ. And that's why we come to church, to actually participate in his sufferings by eating his body and drinking his blood. Participation in the sufferings of Christ is always Eucharistic. It's always participating in the one who showed us mercy by receiving that mercy and having that mercy in our bodies that give us the consolation that we we need. Abraham's, he's going to reiterate it, but in a different way. And this is where the punchline comes. Abraham says, they have, and I I think he says it, I mean, in in a gentle way. They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear him. And hear them. And, And I think, in a way, you could say that Abraham says, let him go to the divine service. Let him hear the word of God. You know, let him receive the gifts that are there. That's what he's saying. You know, I, I used to visit people when I was a pastor, and they were in all kinds of trouble, and pastor, help me, what can I do? And come to church. Come to church. You know, be in the fellowship of the saints. Receive the love and the mercy that's there. But you've got to be in the presence of Christ. I can help you, yes, but the one who really helps you is Jesus. And where is he? where he's, his word is, where his, his, the feast of eternity is. Come there. And that's really all Abraham is saying. This, and, and in a way, remember what I said, what did Jesus do? He taught, he showed mercy, you know. That's word and sacrament, really, miracles. The miracles of the new era of salvation are the sacraments. 
you know, because miracles testify to the presence of Jesus in the creation showing mercy, giving forgiveness. Sacraments are the presence of Jesus in his creation showing mercy. Baptism, Lord's Supper, these are acts of mercy. And that's all, it's so simple. Moses and the prophets, that's where you hear what you need to hear. And so the rich man still will not take no for an answer. And he says, no, Father Abraham. But if someone from the dead should journey to them, they will repent. And he's, he's asking Lazarus to, to do his heavy lifting here. Come back, you know. And Father Abraham reiterates it now, and he adds the resurrection. And like, like I said, this is just, to me, it's just so vital to see this in the context of what Jesus does after he rose from the dead in Luke 24. Abraham said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, not even if someone were to rise out of the dead, will they be persuaded. So not even somebody who is bodily resurrected in their midst will be persuaded. Now, to a certain extent, you know, he is talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees there. And here's a little inside baseball. You know, and some of you might have heard this before from me. The Pharisees were the the religious conservatives. They were the Bible believers. They were the Bible scholars. And they were really very close to Jesus. I mean, they, they believed in messianic prophecy. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in the supernatural. They believed in angels. I mean, they were really very, very much like Jesus. They taught very much the same, which is why they invited him to his synagogues, because they were, they, were, they, were, they were one with him in many ways. There was the difference, though. And the difference was that the way of salvation they taught was by means of the law, and Jesus taught by means of himself, the gospel. So it was the way of the law, the way of the gospel. And here's the, here's the kicker for Jesus. The Pharisees, because they taught the way of the law, they taught that salvation comes by their own cooperation with God. Classic works of the law. What Paul rails against in places like Galatians and Romans and other places. You know, they, they could somehow, by their own righteousness, make their way into heaven. I mean, and, and, and I always like to say, all of us yeah, were born sinful and unclean. But even worse, we're born Pharisees. We're all self-righteous. If you're married, you know how that is. Okay? You're always blaming your wife or your wife's blaming you. Right? I mean, it's just it's your fault, you know? Yeah. Um, and and we, we are. We, we think that we can do this on our own. Now, here's what the Pharisees did. Two minutes. Here's what the Pharisees did. And you've got to go back to Luke 12. I was going to start there, but I'm going to end there. Luke 12 is one of the most important discourses in the Scriptures. Because it's addressed to the Pharisees, who are lovers of money, and they're also hypocrites. Now, what is a hypocrite? A hypocrite is somebody, in, in, at least in Jesus' world, who is afraid to confess the true faith. And the Pharisees were afraid to confess the true faith. They didn't listen to Moses and the prophets. They ultimately did not believe in the Messiah. They believed in themselves. They trusted in themselves. I mean... At the end of the gospel with the Pharisee and the tax collector of the temple, I mean, it's so clear. Luke says, one more time with feeling, for those of you who are a little slow, okay, you know, the Pharisee trusted in himself. He didn't go down righteous, the, the tax collector. He understood mercy. He understood the atonement. He's the one who is forgiven. He's the one who is righteous. 
Hypocrites build a facade, okay? They build a facade to stand behind because they're afraid to show what they really believe, what they really confess, who they really are. They're afraid. And the Pharisees, this is what's in Luke 12, and this is directly related to this. The Pharisees built the facade by means of the way they misuse possessions. So the improper use of possessions is what built the facade of hypocrisy. So the three things go together. Fear of confessing the true faith leads you to hypocrisy. Hypocrisy comes from not using your possessions rightly. And if that happens, what you're not doing, just to, you're not listening to Moses and the prophets, and even if someone to rise from the dead, like Jesus, you're not going to listen to him. The quintessential example of that is Paul. I mean, I could go on and on, but I only have one minute. <laughs> Paul knew everything Jesus was about. He witnessed the, I think he witnessed the crucifixion. He knew about the resurrection, but he didn't believe it until the road to Damascus. He was a classic Pharisee who trusted in himself. And, and it's, it, this is just such a wonderful example of so many themes in Luke's gospel. Okay. Time, do we have time for a question or two? I know there might be. Quick questions. Yes, David. It's slightly tangential to this, but the whole idea of the, the conversation between Abraham and the real name. Yeah. There's much about heaven and eternity we can't really comprehend with our with our own human way of thinking. But I always thought, you know, people would say, oh, they're looking down on me, my departed brother. Yeah, yeah. Can you really can you really see what's going on on earth or in hell when you're in heaven? Because wouldn't that cause sadness and there is no sadness or remorse up there? I'll use my, my favorite response to a question like that. I have no idea. <laughs> And, and the scriptures do not tell us. They don't. And, I, and I, they, you know, it would be very tempting to go beyond that. I'd love to, but I can't. Now, and and, and here's, what, here's all I'd say to you about when you die, you're with Christ. That's it. Okay? And that's all I'm going to say. And, and, that, and, that, and, that, and whether or not we can... Now, here you can see, to illustrate it, there is this conversation between heaven and hell. But, yeah. And, it, and, I, and I think, like I said, you can push it too far, but... Good. Yes, sir. Is there any correlation between Lazarus, Jesus' friend, and Lazarus? Yeah, good. I, you know, um, there, there probably is. And that may be why when Jesus tells this story, he uses that name. Because Lazarus does rise from the dead. Okay? And, and I, I, I have a footnote where I speculate on that a little bit. But again, I, I, you know, and some of the church fathers do. So, but it's hard, again, that's hard to prove. But it, there, it certainly makes you think of the one who actually died and rose again, yeah. Who smelled. <laughs> I love that. Three days. Okay. Big week for Christmas sharing. Carol, you All right. Yeah. And uh, a bit? Uh, a big week. This is Christmas sharing week. And there, we need lots of help. Good time to show your mercy. We need help, especially on Tuesday morning when we go around and pick up the stuff from the schools. Uh, only two people have signed up. We need at least 
three or four more people to hold the doors while the kids do the loading, and two or three guys to help Marty, who's going to be driving the work truck. Um, Tuesday night is the family service night. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of fun. Mercy. <laughs> it's got giving. Who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. <laughs>